0: Plenty to discuss on the Rugby Paper podcast following Round 3 of the Six Nations, but today's guest is very, very special. The end of last week also marked one year since Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And joining us today from Kiev is former Plymouth, Isha and Rotherham rugby player and the BBC News Ukraine correspondent James Waterhouse. Round 3 is done and dusted. As always, plenty to discuss. Brendan is here, Nick is here, no Chris Hewitt today to defend his shameful predictions. Um, so we can chastise him at will. Uh, a very special guest, though. He played rugby for Rotherham, Isha and Plymouth, but now he's the BBC News Ukraine correspondent. We are, of course, just passing the anniversary of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And talking to us from out there, I'm guessing you're in Kiev, James, is James
1: Waterhouse. Thanks, Ollie. Yeah, I'm, I join you from... Um, I'm in and out of a hotel here, so I'm sort of... I'm sat in my hotel room, which is increasingly feeling like a cell. Um, so send help, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been in a hotel for the past year then? In and out. So I've got a flat, but with the blackouts and, you know, with the missile strikes, it's useful being near a shelter. Um, yeah. Or otherwise I'm on the road. So it's pretty much just life out of a suitcase, which can be a bit brutal. Um, yeah. But yeah, the last, with the gear up to the, uh, the anniversary, um, I've sort of been chained to Kiev, which is no bad thing necessarily.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that anniversary then. Obviously, we'll get to the rugby, and you know, people who watch <clears> rugby <throat> will have seen minute silences held to commemorate it. Um, February 24th was the year mark. Um, just talk about the past weekend out there. Obviously, we we commemorated it in the UK, but it's very different when you're there. And then,
1: so what's been going on to look back on it? Well, what I always go on are my you know my Ukrainian colleagues, and I've got a producer called Anna Tronus who. Is born and raised in Kiev, and I've kind of lived it through her in terms of the the trauma of having her country invaded, you know, being separated from family members, friends, falling out with Russian relatives, um, and she's found this week really difficult. And I, I think I've seen that kind of replicated elsewhere. But on Friday. Um, it was clear that Ukraine wanted to mark this day, and I, I didn't know which way it would go. You know, I think they've always tried to shine a light as much as possible on what the country is going through because it needs to lock down foreign support. You know, it needs to keep, sustain its war effort. And it was um, it was really poignant, actually, when you think about what the country went through this time a year ago: the shock, the trauma, and everything else. And here we are now. At the back end or sadly a continuing chain of events from that one decision from vladimir putin and i think it's going to be a very long time before we fully realize the full implications of of what russia's full-scale invasion has brought um but for me you know president zelensky called a three-hour press conference in a hotel full of journalists which shows the confidence he has. You know, he's probably one of the most tightly protected guys on the planet. And he went to this hotel conference center. We all went through security, sat down, and he sat there for three hours and just took questions. And you could ask him anything, he was on good form. I just thought, yeah, this is a guy who embraces the risk of being a wartime leader. And because, you know, if you're President Zelensky, you can't hang around somewhere for 15 minutes typically because the Russians can locate you and you're a bit at risk. But I just thought, what an extraordinary moment, you know, he sort of sat there and took questions and he wanted to kind of give the media something. Um, And it was, yeah, it was a, it was a strange, poignant day. Ukraine is still here in a sense. It is still fighting for its survival and its sense of identity has been strengthened after everything. So yeah, a poignant day, I'll be honest with you. You mentioned that sort of sense of identity,
0: um, times of crisis often bring out that identity. Speak about how you have seen that in the sort of chronology of you being out there for the entire
1: year. Well, before the invasion. So I was here, I first rocked up six weeks before the invasion. Um, And my job was sort of like the the geopolitics of it all. So you would speak to people um, in the East, in in Crimea who were a lot more kind of Russian leaning ideologically. But Russian leaning doesn't necessarily mean being invaded and ruled by Russia. It can just mean wanting to have closer economic ties, for example, or identifying as Russian, certainly with older generations, where there's a bit of kind of Soviet nostalgia. So we kind of explored that. And, you know, politically, just like Westminster, it's, you know, politicians try and take chunks out of each other. There are divisive issues and everything else. And President Zelensky was branded as a, Political lightweight, he's a comedian, uh, he wasn't a great speaker before this war. Um, and so it was kind of the throes of a typical European country, which, by the way, was already at war. You know, let's we sort of easily forget, that, don't we? Um, you know, separatist militants have been fighting in the East for eight e- years when I arrived. Crimea had essentially been grabbed, taken by Moscow without firing a shot. So, um, what this war did, and also this was a country grappling with the Omicron variant of coronavirus. So there was kind of all the rules around masks and everything else. And it's amazing how the onset of this full-scale invasion just etch-sketched the whole thing, where there was at the time political unity, coronavirus was put to, to put put to one side, and mm-hmm. you know on the whole, uh, Ukrainians are kind of brought together with a common goal of survival. And time and time again, when Russia is aggressive, Ukraine tries to lean the other way. And, you know, it's, it's happening this time, just as it has in the past. I'm right in saying
0: you, it, you've not just been out since mid-Feb. It was start of January last year. Did you? Yeah, it was mid-Jan. Mid-Jan. Okay. And that month build up, obviously, Feb 24th, I think I've seen you talk about it in a sort of mini documentary about, did you sleep through the first <coughs> explosions? Yes,
1: um, I confess. That, yeah. Well, I I <laughs> I've I don't think I I have got form here. There was a there was a, there were Shaheed these Iranian Shahid drones in the air last night and the, the siren went off and the tannoy Tanoi went. I slept through that as well. I had to get woken up to go down to the shelter last night. So I've got form. <laughs> deep deep sleeper then. Yeah, yeah. I could say overwork. <laughs> but what really interested
0: <laughs> yeah, well no kidding. Um but what really interested me about Uh, what you were talking about was you'd obviously been in the city for a month now and Kiev is it's a young city it's vibrant it's got energy and you woke up and these explosions have gone off and the BBC have a balcony they record from right they have a vantage point from where from which you get quite a good view of the city and you know I know exactly what you're going to say but a lot of people don't know but speak about how you arrived onto the balcony. And, you know you have to broadcast because obviously journalism, the world waits for no one. You've got to report on this, and you saw a city yeah. that all of a sudden, over the course of one nap or sleep or whatever you were doing,
1: has transformed. Yeah, I, I know it will. It will forever stay with me, really. Where you know you have the the politics where we'd had this. We've been covering like this growing urgency in language from the West who are saying it's gonna happened know, the White House saying look we're not joking and then you had Zelensky saying don't panic this is what Moscow does we're not going to play into their hands and so you had these kind of forces overhead where you're in a city and my job was we were flat out covering this growing crisis and you know we just treated it like any other story but it was the biggest story I've ever built, dealt with it at that time and what happened on at around five to five on that morning was the most sudden connection between the politics and then the military side. And all of a sudden, this gradual gathering of 150,000 troops with all that military hardware, suddenly that became, it felt kinetic, where you'd had this kind of images of them doing exercises in Russia and Belarus. You had nuclear drills and everything else. All of a sudden, those images became real and you had this one of the biggest militaries in the world moving in from three directions and so that morning the job became really really simple it, because it was a fast moving all encompassing invasion where we were with ukrainians here who were realizing in real time what was happening to their hometowns their relatives people getting you know their, their homes destroyed uh and there was shock and there was trauma and so many ukrainians would say i can't believe he's actually done it and for me it's the speed it was you know in the blink of an eye a city synonymous with nightlife culture fine dining just went dark and it became almost apocalyptic where you know I don't want to get too deep but you could feel the fear you could really feel the panic where you're sort of walking down the road and people are angry we tried to speak to people. They were so frightened. So, you know, there was a queue outside a pharmacy that morning where people were trying to, desperately trying to get their medical prescriptions before they weren't able to. You had people, you know, Zelensky tweeted. He said, anyone who wants an automatic rifle will get one. You know, this is a Western leader. It was just an extraordinary morning. And then you had people running around with AK-47s on hastily assembled military checkpoints pointing guns at people. Um it's just the speed of it. And, you know, while there have been relative normalities restored in some areas, um, this is, it's a state of war, by definition, is is unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Well, I mean,
2: James, can you... Sorry, um, go on,
1: Brendan.
2: James, can you take this into your working week a little bit? Um, and this might be the first occasion we touch on the rugby side, because... We yeah. see you in front of the cameras, but of course, it's, it's a massive team effort. You've got drivers, translators, um, yeah. camera crew, editors uh, on the ground. So we see your your polished performance in front of the, the camera, um, but it, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there's a little bit of a, a parallel with with rugby there, isn't that? In all the working parts have to work in unison to reduce, you know, to execute to produce a performance.
1: I agree, and it, it it brings me great delight to bring a rugby analogy in this kind of answer because you know when you see Ollie Lawrence crossing over, when you see that little clip against Wales and he touched the ball down on on the fringe, there have been numerous phases to that point where everyone has kind of played their part, and you know producers in a rugby sense are like buried under a pile of bodies, having hit numerous rucks to keep the ball going. You know, you, you could go on, but it's before I open my mouth, there is so much that goes on, you know, especially in a war of misinformation, just as much as anything else. You know, we have analysts looking at foreign news reports, giving us reports, putting into context. I have a producer who's going through all the kind of sources and trying to work out what's going on, who is saying what. I have an editor making sure that we're, you know, the logistics and making sure that we're on the right track. And um, none of it happens. You know, the the, the engineers operating a satellite dish on the the roof, drivers, you know, driving us to some pretty hairy places. um, At the drop of, you know, a a second's notice sometimes. Um, We have local producers who have translation who have, you know, we're very blessed here to have such talented local journalists who the BBC employs on a freelance basis, and, and kind of open doors for us and offer us really good insight. So yeah, it's it's just as much about the people you work with. I mean, I get the glory. I'm in a very, very, very privileged position in that. You know, you get to kind of be the face of it or the voice of it or type some articles, but you know, I I would be nowhere. Without you know, if I was to lose just one of my team, it would be, it would be a real struggle.
2: And to extend that rugby analogy a little bit, will you? Um, if you get time, I suspect possibly you don't. Will you take yourselves away and have a bit of a huddle, a bit of a debrief? How can we do this better? Did we get that right? Uh, how can we sharpen this up? Where's the story going next? Where do we need to be? What's the next play? I suppose is the rugby analogy.
1: Yeah, I I guess what what caught me out, Brendan, was. Um, you know, in, in a rugby sense, you have quite a, a linear kind of chain of command, don't you? You have your coach with captain and then you have the kind of captain and maybe a couple of experienced players that will kind of spread that message, get a group focused and everything else. Um, it's a bit more nuanced in news where I would, of course, like, say, look, let's we need to be doing more of this or whatever else. But like, my producer, Anna, runs it, you know. So the number of times she'll sort of say, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I hear you. Anyway, we need to... And then we'll just <laughs> go ahead and say what, well, you know... She's and, the skipper. And she's the skipper, and there's a separation between power and glory, where I get the glory is discussed, but it's the producers and the editors who do so much of the unsung stuff, but ultimately, you know, I don't get indulged. You know, I'll get told in no uncertain terms, yeah, well, I need a script from you, you know, but this is all good and well, nice small talk, isn't it? I need a script from you, you know, or or we need to go here or, you know, in the case of Anna, you know, when I first arrived, I was just in sponge mode trying to absorb Ukrainian uh, history and context and politics. And then and she would be straight. I come off air and she'd be like, we need to, we really need to talk about what you've just said. You know, and we'd be just working as we go and you, you, you get like the snowball effect. Um, So it really is a bit more nuanced, but my, you know, my editor, Kate Peters is, she's dedicated most of her working life to Russia the region she's a fluent speaker her knowledge is unparalleled and she's a lot more subtle she's been nothing but empowering and you know early on I was quite intimidated by her knowledge but kind of blown away by how she didn't weaponize that or you know she just kind of backed me and I think you know I wasn't always blessed with that in rugby
2: um
3: James lead, so. leadership's so important you've you've touched on that just um Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Zelensky and how important he is as a figurehead in Ukraine? Because it just seems to me that his transformation as an individual has been extraordinary. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man, maybe small in stature, but he seems to have a a hell of a heart.
1: Yeah, I think what's unique, we talk about, you know, is political unity, certainly at the start of the invasion. It's not just about a figurehead. People see Zelensky as a reflection of themselves, which is an unprecedented for me kind of political scenario, where the decision by him to stay when by all intents and purposes, if you looked at all the analysis and all of the predictions, the Russians were going to come here and they were going to kill him. And he had the offer of a way out and he turned it down. You know, the US offered him a ticket. Um, And I think there will be scrutiny down the line over his decisions early on in that invasion and before, why didn't he act on Western warnings? Why didn't he better fortify the South when the Russians effectively just strolled in and occupied the territory they still do? But if we're talking in a kind of hot air balloon perspective moment, he stayed because he wanted to defend his country his wife came to him. He hasn't seen his parents since the outbreak of this war. He barely sees his kids. Um, I think he's gone on to become the symbol, the reflection, the kind of manifestation of Ukraine's survival. And you can see the toll. On On Friday, when you look, we went through some archive of him throughout the year, and, you know, when he swapped the suit for the military fatigues, the toll this has visibly taken on him is plain to see. You know, the weight... Uh, that must be on his shoulders, the responsibility he feels you know he saw the effect when he saw butcher, where war crimes were committed when the russian Russians first retreated from Kiev um he wears it you know i've gotta say alongside this his <laughs> we are talking about a very successful comedian, actor, producer, you know strangely for an administration that takes care of itself, he can do the speeches. He can do the Q and A when we were at that press conference. You know, there was a camera on a jib. There was, you know, two cameras either end. There was a professional photographer. You know, the media just gets sent all this stuff. So the messaging weirdly takes care of itself. It's the kind of you know you imagine it's probably the other decision making that he puts his focus on. So I think history will look on him favorably because if he had left, then that would have left a vacuum, and when you're talking about the hundreds of ukrainian soldiers that are dying every day more on the russian side but if we're talking about people giving their lives and if the leader had been absent we might be talking under very different circumstances today fairly extraordinary
0: hearing you um speak about all of this if i can ask about your own sort of position this time last year you mentioned that it was by far the biggest um story you'd ever reported on and i'm curious as to what the predecessor of that was um, and what sort of scale you were used to and obviously you underwent all the journalism training um necessary but nothing prepares you for anything
1: of that magnitude how did you well how did you do it i'm still working that out to be honest with you um you know before Ukraine. I was a bit of a generalist, so I'd be quite at home doing. I, was, I I did a few years in local TV. You know, I could do sport. I could do. I remember doing one point doing a drag show evening for for local TV, doing a live there and chatting to some of the acts, and I was quite at home doing it. It was fine and, and whatever else. I'd done. I had done some NATO exercises in the Arctic Circle when Russia started its campaign of aggression. Uh, and travelled a bit, I did uh, po- anti poaching operations in Malawi and everything else. So I knew I loved that kind of dicey environment side of things. I knew I liked being in the field and, you know, being fairly independent. Um, but I'm still processing the kind of learning curve I've been on in the sense that you can you, you can you can prepare to a degree, but the amount you absorb once you arrive in a country and work with colleagues, make friends, interview politicians, get a feeling of attitude and and culture uh, and everything else. I mean, that alone is quite an extraordinary learning curve to go on. The outbreak of a war just accelerated that, really. So, you know, I, I sort of live and breathe it. And I think as we talk now, I think I've more latterly appreciated the need to listen to myself, listen to my body when it's time for a rest. You know, you don't want to leave yourself numb. Um, You need, sometimes you need a bit of time and space to keep that kind of analytical view on things. Um, But with Ukrainian colleagues, they feel a huge responsibility and guilt if they peel away. And me to a degree, but, you know, um, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off next week, um, which I just, you know, I know I need, and I'm going to completely switch off, you know? So I don't know. I, I, you know, I, the reason I've done it, let's bring it back is, is, is the team I work with. You know, I feel completely supported, listened to um, people have been incredibly patient with me. Um, and, you know, this is, it's, it's, you know, be, it would be like playing a match on your own. It just doesn't work. Mm. So um,
2: I think that's how. Well, one of the big things we've noticed here, James, is despite the madness and the turmoil is, and I suppose this is the same in, in many war zones, it's the normality as well, how people just get on with their lives. Yeah. And I, I for my trouble, I, I follow the Ukrainian rugby feed on Twitter. And they hold, they've they held all their winter training, their sevens competitions. They've got a, a European trophy match uh, next week. I think, in fact, they're playing two matches, the national team. Um, that's the second division of the European Rugby League. Um, so they just keep on buggering on, don't they? You know, and, and that's much a war thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, it is amazing. You know, I mean, what embodied it for me was it was five days into the invasion, right? And uh, we could hear automatic gunfire and shelling and all the rest of it when the Russians started to get held out about 30 kilometres away. And then I was, I was doing a live report and I could hear a, and it was, oh, what's going on, James? What's going on behind you? And it was a pneumatic drill because these sort of council workers had to resurface a road and there were <laughs> <laughs> they were heading out and doing some, uh, tarmacking. Um, and there were, there were businesses here as well. Like one of my favorite, you know, some of my favorite lunch spots or coffee places, they were open and they were, people were visibly strained at the time, but they were like, well, of course we're going to be open. what else can we do? You know? And that, you, then you were speaking to people who decided to stay, um, you know, people left in their millions. Many stay to either live about their lives or or fight. And you know, if you if even if you go today, when you go to the east, for example, you go to somewhere like Kramators, which comes under fairly regular shelling in bits. Um, you can have people going to the market, going to the shop, queuing for petrol, chatting over a coffee. And then you sort of take a left off a main road and go five miles down the road to this to back move, and it's some of the most hostile environments you can ever report from. And that kind of sums it up. And this is a part of Ukraine that's seen nine years of war and everything else. And it's just it's it's it's, it's just been a year full of contradictions in that sense. Um, and even though like it feels normal now where I am, you just need to cheat, speak to people, and they all know someone who's at the front they have someone who's been killed, they have someone close to them who's fighting that they're they're worried about or they've separated or whatever else. So you don't have to scratch much to to see just just the the constant, relentless effect this war has on people. And most people now are just shattered. They are exhausted by it. On that note, one word that you've used on your
0: Twitter quite a lot, actually, um, to look back on the past year is hope. And I feel like hope can become sometimes a powerful symbol, but also it can be overused. You know, sometimes people, the term is used flippantly and then it becomes devoid of meaning. Is there still meaning to the term hope in Kiev um, as as things stand? You know, a year into this, obviously, Zelensky said he dreads to think if there's in 12 months that they're going to be in the same situation. Is there still that optimism? You mentioned the exhaustion, With exhaustion tends to come
1: resignation as well yeah i think that question is what a lot of the audience are asking which is you know certainly like the bbc does all this kind of research around it and people are rightfully asking like well can they win like you know i've seen so much death and destruction you know like give it's a human impulse isn't it you know give me some hope give me some light from the shadow um in terms of its meaning now i mean any ukrainian would tell you what else have i got you know, if I don't hope to prevail, then I may as well just roll over and let a Russian puppet regime take over this country, and all the lives that have been lost may well be for nothing. Um. So hope will will forever have meaning. I think our job as journalists, certainly when I asked Zelensky about it, is you know trying to separate that hope and belief from reality, and that's our job. You know, it's not always a popular line of questioning. You've got to say like, right, you know, you're you're asking for support, you're. Confidently saying victory will come this year, but but will it? You know, like what 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 do you really need? You know, and if you, if it doesn't come, what are you going to blame? You know, and, and the longer this kind of draws out, Ukraine knows that it's going to be pressure to to enter peace negotiations. So uh, you know, you sense that it wants to um, desperately make some progress this year, but you know, hope will forever have meaning because what else have they got? One
0: other um, side of things is the side that the the, the war is in the spotlight. And it's always, you know, I I actually study um, sociology of media at university at the moment, and we speak about media desensitization effect. For those that don't know what that means, you know, everyone's victim to it. The death, the devastation, the destruction you see in the news, you just become a little bit numb to it. Yeah, yeah. I know that you feel that it's a good thing that the war has been in the spotlight, but have you noticed... A desensitization effect, both personally being out there one and also in terms of the reception
1: of your work as well that's a good question i think um i think you know i don't want to sound crass but there is a saturation point where how many piles of rubble can you see how many burnt out buildings how mean how many you know firing howitzers can you see you know you, you there is a saturation point no doubt for me I have to really work hard to separate myself. Like I'm in it, obviously believe in the work we do. Um, that's never going to change, but you do have to separate yourself. And I remember um, for the you know, between February and about June, we covered everything. We tried to cover every aspect of this war: Russian advance here, um, alleged war crimes there, political scenarios here, everything else. And and then eventually we sort of agreed that look, you know, we we need to be more targeted with this. You know, there is, we are now hitting that point. There is audience fatigue. We've got the data which shows that without a kind of clear beginning, middle and forecasted end, audience uh, interest is waning, you know, and people naturally want to know where that point of resolution is. And so what I try and do is give play out scenarios with all the caveats, but we've got to try, I think the job to, to me is trying to, you know, try and, guide people down this path um that's not helped by the fact that this war could well last for years just look at what's happened before this point um but that's that to me is the job and that's what actually now most of my effort goes into is what sorry can you clarify that latter bit that you said so my i put most of my effort into trying to be as targeted and distinctive right. in storytelling as possible rather than kind of doing a military weather forecast like well from the south the russians have made gains here and there and they might be about to take back moot meanwhile uh her son was shelled again overnight because you get all these reports all the time it's about now sifting through and and thinking right does this meet the threshold for telling a story today and i think that's now the focus yeah, okay. No, that's really interesting.
0: Um, and you said that you did notice or have noticed or may notice audience
1: attention waning? In, in yeah, interest waning. Yeah, yeah interest so they, waning. They do a lot of like sample studies and they interview people from different backgrounds and, and that's the kind of um, correlation at the moment. And speak
0: of the importance then of the war itself being in the spotlight, obviously. In, in history, you know, we've all studied... Lots of wars um, in which there isn't this level of scrutiny, um, and someone like Zelensky wouldn't have become necessarily the world symbol that he's now become. For example, you think
1: that's a good thing? I think it's a good thing for Ukraine. You know, I think you know what do you what do you need out of a out of a war? We well, need a war leader. You know, if you look at Winston Churchill, he suffered a very bad election defeat straight after the Second World War. But if we look at it now, looking back in history, he was clearly the figurehead that britain needed at that moment in in time if if you look at the parallels you know look at zelensky's visit to dc you know and in his in his military overalls and and addressing congress you know it's what i've learned this was my obviously my first war but when you meet more experienced colleagues like lise dissent or jeremy bowen and clive myrie and you know all the parallels they draw from wars gone by and the build-up you know history sadly repeats itself so you know the importance of us telling the the story of the first war in Europe since 1945 is an extension of those future history books where hopefully you know your kids uh, will, will you know look at you know look at what we provided they will shape writing in the future and maybe those future decision makers might Think twice before guiding us to a scenario like this again. I mean, it really is that kind of profound, in my view.
2: Awesome. On the subject of Jeremy Bowen, how how did he take defeat on Saturday? There, he
1: he tactically took himself off to another pub. He turned down my invite of going to the bar uh, <laughs> here. <laughs> so, I, uh, I, took, I I took myself. I was with in an English echo chamber with a, <laughs> with another colleague. He sort of took himself off um but he's he's sympathetic towards the players with all this kind of strike stuff you know um it's uh i'm am I'm just glad the game went ahead but i was nervous yeah. of the gambling effects i got to say because you know the welsh they could they would happily lose every game of the season uh, as long as they beat us so. yeah <laughs> well
0: three three of the five of us predicted that they would um i think well, yeah. that that is our window into the weekend of rugby um but Yeah, Jane, it's remarkable what you're doing and it's extraordinary to hear about it. And yeah, a privilege to be able to ask you those sorts of questions. Yeah, there's no real way to transition into the rugby except say, you know, it's great that you got to watch. Did you watch all three games? Are you watching? No,
1: no, I I saw the England game and I've I've just seen some some other highlights. Um, But I'm doing that thing where we lost to Scotland, so Scotland now need to win it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is
0: obviously now less likely after the well cracker of a game against France yesterday we'll get to that in a second let's start with that England game then Brendan I'll come to you first France Scotland was fantastic I think that made it even clearer that England was it wasn't the best of games you'll ever see was it
2: it was a bit stodgy there was was a lot on the line for both sides the win was everything uh my slight disappointment with England was that the first try was a cracker and I thought that was going to be you know, the prototype for how they were going to approach the rest of the game. And in fact, the last try was extremely well taken, the one that um, James already mentioned by Ollie Lawrence. In between, it became a little bit um, Autumn Cup 2020, didn't it? With the with the box kicking. But I say the, the emphasis on on winning was so, so big in this particular match that I suppose we can excuse that. I thought Wales were poor. I don't know quite what's happening. It's a very, very difficult week for them. I was expecting a bit more from Wales, if I'm honest. And now, you know, they are fighting. Well, I think I did predict they would get the wooden spoon about six weeks ago. And I I'd, I'd sort of said that tongue-in-cheek, thinking I'll get some stick for this. But actually, they've got to beat, you know, they have to beat Italy away now, which is not going to be easy. Otherwise, they will win the wooden spoon.
0: I think you did predict Italy would beat Wales. I predicted Wales would beat Italy, which I'm now feeling slightly remiss about. Um, Nick, I'll come to you about the Owen Farrell conundrum, which I think was probably most highlighted in game three out of the championship, Um, 44-ish percentage kick success rate. To me, he seems to play differently at 10 for England than he does for Saracens. At Saracens, you see a lot of, he has an offloading game, he takes the ball to the line, good flat passes, clever tactical kicking. Him at 10 for England, he doesn't seem to really bring that same vigour.
3: I don't know. I mean, the the goal kicking is a uh, is a separate item. He's definitely got a case of the yips at the moment. Um, It's just a question of how long um, he's persevered. You know, um, the Borthwick perseveres with him as goal kicker. And um, you'd have to think possibly not that long because the games against France and Ireland come. He's going to have to be on the money um goal kicking wise I, I thought that um it's quite interesting what you've said about farrell uh in terms of his his play uh, in open field i actually thought i mean he was involved in um in both of the tries a very slick inside pass uh for the um for for watson's try so i'm not sure that i, I thought he was clunky in the first two games and i thought he was less clunky um uh on saturday um i but you know i mean you compare him playing for saracens you know i mean he's been embedded in that saracens team forever so their patterns and uh, are absolutely in you know embedded in his in, in his in his grey matter so i think that he he understands them very well and he looks much more at ease he's much more fluent at ten, for Saracens than he is with England, but it's early days for this England side. You know, I mean, uh, it's still it's not quite stutter steps. Actually, they they do have more of a shape, more form, and um, the France game is you know is a, every test is an acid acid test, and that's their next one. Um, but I'm I'm not sure that he looked. Um, I I sort of saw something of an advance about England as a whole, and I think he was a part of that.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I. it was the speed for me, and Wales didn't play with much pace, but I don't think England did either, not till um, Alex Mitchell came on. I thought he made actually a massive difference when he came on, and it's a shame Chris isn't here to inevitably sing his praises, because we know how much Chris loves Alex Mitchell. Um, James, on the Owen Farrell conundrum, while Nick was talking, there was a lot of head shaking and then head nodding,
1: I'm so conflicted on uh, you know a great England player where I think now, given the improvements that Nick alluded to, have we reached the point of no return where it would be more disruptive to then bring in Marcus Smith um do you now stick with what you've got, given that you know I think ollie lawrence is is having a real box office spell you know there he's is is you know you look at the effect he's had at Bath and he's in there and he's making things happen. And and Fowle's always been a very, very kind of good, to me, a pivotal player where he distributes well, he defends well, and he's a solid kicker. So you can have the kind of electricity outside. That said, you know, Marcus Smith is a whole different kind of entity and it, it's, you know, if he comes in, I can see Oli Lawrence still getting us over the game line and you could have him in Slade combining perfectly well. So, You know, I'm glad I don't have to make these kind of selections, but I I hold my hand up like any England fan. Whenever we aren't playing well, my frustrations are targeted on a certain player. And it's been foul for the first couple of games. And it's not fair. I know he's the kind of fly half captain. Everything else leads from the front. So, you know, when he purrs, you won't hear me complain. But I do worry about, you know, the the kind of lack of cohesion where I do think our ball is slower I think by the time it gets to ten and goes out, it's a bit more telegraphed, and there are those moments as an England family thing. Oh, it's like watching us in 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 the old days where we were just you know hopelessly uncompetitive. So I am conflicted, and I am relieved that it's not my call. <laughs> Brendan, who would you start at ten for France?
2: Oh, uh, I'm okay with Farrell starting, but I think if it's not working, you don't give Marcus Smith 25 seconds at the end. Yeah, that was. I think you bring him on 50 minutes and and you make, you know, you've made the brave call to go with Owen Farrell ahead of Marcus Smith. You then have to make another brave call on 50 55 minutes. Is it working? And actually, the call again is Farrell or Marcus Smith. I don't think you bring Smith on and move Owen Farrell to 12 and disrupt the 12 13 axis, which is beginning to look quite handy. So, uh, yeah, I think I'd go go with Owen um, for the France match, but just please give Marcus Smith some game time if it's warranted.
0: This is where I think Steve Borthwick has created a bit of of an issue in making Farrell captain. Yes. Because it means, you know, Farrell... As Nick
2: predicted about three weeks ago. He he, he
0: did. He did. Um, And, you know, by that logic, Farrell has to play a full 80, or, you know, I I, Mm. I don't think I've ever seen him be tactically taken off with the game still in the balance. And it means that either you bring Smith on earlier and move out Farrell to 12, which is not ideal, or what we saw on... Saturday nick which was the whole 15 second 22nd second get your cap nonsense with i think it was it was three of them wasn't it it was farrell arundel and walker yeah, yeah. not farrell uh, smith arundel and walker
3: yeah it's a it's a nonsense really i i don't understand that at all uh, i don't know whether it's something to do with uh, with um, player fees or or whatever but i um i, I do feel i've i felt all the way along that farrell shouldn't have been um, Borthwick's first captain uh i think that he's got enough on his on his plate being a goal kicker and being the uh you know the the ringmaster and um but it's it's a difficult change to make now uh in in many ways but uh you know it's uh, i just feel that he is somebody who just in terms of the way that he he communicates I don't think that the media aspect of things should be everything by any stretch of the imagination. It should be what you do on the, on the pitch. Uh, but I, I, I think that when he falters a bit, as with his goal kicking and so on, it just calls into question the amount that he's got on his shoulders. And also, you know, just to, you know, he's, he's got good leaders in this team, you know, laws is back now Laws's leadership has been, uh, has been pretty good. And, um, you just feel that, uh, it, it, maybe it, it it is a change that has to be made, even though it's a difficult one.
0: Realistically, do you think it's going to be made in the next 10 days or so? No. No. Me I don't think
3: there's a chance. I no. think that, um, he's, um, you know, Borthwick has uh, has set out his, his stall.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. Um, Brendan, you mentioned that you were expecting a little bit more from Wales. Uh, James, I'll come to you about this, actually. Have, well, one, James, have you ever been to the Principality Stadium? I have, I have. It's, it's a great day out, isn't it? I've, I've never actually been. It only looks like one, but um, something that I can't remember who was on commentary it was Jiffy, who was actually on with us last week, and maybe it was Andrew Cotter, and they were commenting on the Principality Stadium being a little bit quiet. Like, not only will, well, Brendan, you said you were expecting more from the Welsh team. We spoke about hope. Does is that then, James? You think emblematic of Welsh fans losing a little bit of
1: hope? I, 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 I think so. I you know, I've got a lot of Welsh friends and I think when you look at the Principality Stadium, when you look at the role of rugby in Wales and how, you know, the societal function it brings, right, This this is a universal language. It is a vehicle for, you know, so many people to make friends and enjoy their weekends and it is the glue that kind of brings everything together and then you have, you know, it's chaotic at the moment where you have such inflated ticket pricing in my view um which makes their beloved game inaccessible to so many you have this chaotic central contract contracting going on where you know players are being incentivized to 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 stay and play in wales um and you know you there is some talent coming through i think yeah i think there is a kind of broad fatigue descending on the sport at the moment and i think a lot of Welsh fans, passionate as they are, may have already feared the worst going into that game, given just how poor they have been. And I'm completely sympathetic to the squad. Um, it, is, it cannot be easy to play at that level where we're talking about the finest of margins and there is that political and personal chaos going on in the background. So, yeah, I do think that probably distilled into, into the, the atmosphere there. And it's, it's just sad to see in sport. I think you know it, it should be protected at all costs, um, and it's it's thankfully doesn't happen happen often. There's always room for reform. I don't think any rugby body out of any of the home nations is perfect, um, but it's sad to see it spill over where you have players having to feel questions that aren't about
2: rugby. I think yeah. the other factor on Saturday was that the, that dampened the crowd was from from the start. Wales's number one tactic seemed to be high balls to freddie stewart the best catcher of high balls in world rugby and they didn't stop for 80 minutes i mean other than the the interception try um by Summit, that was about it in terms of tactics so i th- I, I they didn't play a star that was going to ignite the crowd and they needed to ignite the crowd on that day above all days
3: yeah they didn't give them any hook to hang their passion on at all no, no. There, there was there was nothing there and you know, I mean, one of the things that I thought it showed was when you have a player like Stuart, that aerial ability is a super strength because the aerial game is, is, is very, very important in the whole structure of it. It's almost like a sort of moving set piece in some ways. And if you have a player of that stature with that sort of timing and ability in the air, it, particularly if he's coming onto the ball and moving forward, you create a dynamic ruck off it or, or, or whatever. It's a it's a huge advantage. Um, Wales were outplayed in you know they were also outplayed at the, at the breakdown. Um, England. One of the things that I mean we'll get to to Scotland, but Scotland look to be a level of fitness above. Virtually any other team in the uh, in the championship perhaps with the exception of the Irish and the pace of the game that they were playing at I mean it looked the England Wales game by comparison looked at, uh, and it looked in slow motion compared to Scotland fr- uh, France Scotland and compared to uh, Italy Ireland
0: do you think buy-in becomes a little bit more difficult as well when obviously the fans will sympathize with their players no doubt but the Welsh rugby union is obviously the body that represents the Welsh rugby team and the comparison I made to someone the other day, and it is very different because Chelsea football club is not a nationality. So you're not necessarily tied to them in the same way, but I'm a Chelsea fan and it is very difficult to, you know, support a club with passion when you fundamentally disagree with the way that the powers that be at the top are acting. And Brendan, do you think that there's a, you know, a case to be said there if, Welsh fans aren't agreeing with the WRU and how they're behaving.
2: Well, I mean, there is a world weariness about Welsh fans and WRU, but let me tell you, as somebody who worked down there for four years, you know, no Welsh rugby fan is ever happy about anything, really. I mean, there is always (laughs) a bit of a whinge going on. And I've got to tell you, some of their greatest Six Nations Grand Slams and Championships have come off, you know, you listen to them in January and the world's about to end. So, you know, doom and gloom is part of the Welsh scene, but there is a disaffection with the wru at the moment and i think perhaps the misogyny and, and the sexism um cases of, of sort of that were revealed about six weeks ago that might have tipped it over to a more serious opposition against them uh but they're, they're in a bit of a hole wales at the moment um be interesting to see how they come out of it
0: hmm. yeah it will massive massive test in rome for them and i think yeah for the first time in a long time they're going in as out and out second favorites um feel free to disagree with me saying that by the way um anyone but yeah let's look at Scotland versus France um and one name comes to mind and he wasn't on the winning side yesterday um nick but Hugh Jones he's yeah. he's
3: i mean he's a hell
0: of a player at the top of his game and he certainly is that at the moment
3: well he's yes he is he's ex- he's exceptional he's got um he's the whole package really he's got uh he's got pace he's powerful too i mean DuPont was hanging on to him for uh, one of his tries. And we know how, you know, that he's a pocket <laughs> battle comes to physical power and uh, he shrugged him off to uh, dot the ball down. His timing, the, the, the late timing of his runs seems to mesh perfectly with, uh, with Finn Russell's passing game. And uh, yeah, he's, he's very, very good. And um you know, p- player one of the players of the tournament so far, and he was. You know, I mean, he he obviously he, he I think he picked up injuries because he was instrumental in Scotland's uh, win over England back in the Eddie Jones era in 2018. Then he seemed to disappear for a while, and he he reinvented himself at Harlequins, I think, uh, a season ago, probably after injury troubles, and he's back to his best now. And he's uh, if if there was a Lions team being picked, he'd oh, be yeah.
0: I think if I remember rightly, it was um and maybe Brendan or James you could comment on this, it was defensive problems, wasn't it? And he just sort of lost all confidence and it was a sort of general case of the I think there was some sense. injury and problems it, there, but and a
2: few well, injuries, um, yeah. Scotland also have a lot of centres to they fit. Do, yeah. And I can remember talking to Gregor about this, you know, he had about four combinations and and he just didn't go with the, the one that has now emerged as the top combination. I mean Hugh Jones is an interesting bloke. I, I watched him at the Roslyn Part Sevens 10 years ago, look a world beater then, looked a complete world beater. But then, you know, the, the path that some... He went down to South Africa, didn't he? And sort of disappeared off the scene a bit. He was a millfield lad, went down to South Africa. And he, then he comes back. Then he then he's Scotland qualified, breaks into the Scotland team. Then he disappears again. And now he's like the best centre in Europe or one of the best centres in Europe. So I, I don't know what the lesson is there other than, you know... um. You can take the scenic route sometimes, and it, and it doesn't do you any harm.
1: He's, he's, I love those journeys. journeys. <laughs> I'd rather it pan out that way.
2: We must talk about your journey soon, uh, James, because you took a pretty scenic journey, I think.
1: <laughs> Not scenic enough, <laughs>
0: <laughs> James. What do you make of Scotland at the moment? I mean, I speak all the time. Every time I speak about them, about their World Cup group from hell. But is this a Scotland that is actually going to a World Cup as a as a world beater
1: for for once? Uh, If we're going to define world beater as a team capable of winning the World Cup, I will say no. But I will say uh, this is the best Scotland team I have seen in my lifetime. I remember the sort of it was ninety nine, wasn't it, when they won the the Five Nations. Um, You know, we're seeing a team almost like the Eddie Jones Japan side, where they are playing such a quick front foot style of play. I think. I think it's strangely worked worked out okay for Townsend in the sense that he's shown he's not willing to, he's willing to kind of drop Finn Russell in the past. That's well documented. And yet he's now sort of harnessing his brilliance on the international stage where he's got, I just love watching Finn Russell. He's standing flat. He's got the talent outside of him as discussed and, they are what, great fun to watch, you know, and, and, and they, they do look fitter. I do agree with that. You know, we've, we've got Forge with an amazing work rate. We've got, um, is it Van der Merwe? Yeah, um, yeah, the winner. Who's, who's just superhuman at the moment. And they just all seem to be complementing each other so well. And you wonder what could have been different if it wasn't for the yellow card, over uh, the red card over the weekend. So I do think we are looking at the, at the, the best Scotland side we have seen for some time. Uh, I think they are going to nevertheless have to seriously punch above their weight to leave us talking about them after the World Cup. But I would be delighted to be proved wrong. Yeah. Not too delighted, though. I'd obviously <laughs> like us to win it. <laughs> I think,
0: yeah, well, they've obviously got to get out of that World Cup group first with Ireland and South Africa, which will be interesting. Um, let's talk about France very briefly. And again, there's one player that comes to mind in terms of washing a, Couple of doubts, Nick. You've spoken about the pressure on to Mac. Do you think he responded somewhat?
3: No, I don't. I think that if you um, if you compare his influence with Russell's, particularly in the last, you know, sort of almost the last hour of the game, there was, you know, one one fly half was head and shoulders above the other. Now Russell's a, a, a rare bird. Uh, but and Tamak had some of that sort of uh, uh, kudos himself when he first came into the side. And uh, he, I noticed his leg was very heavily strapped. And um, he almost, apart from, you know, he got over for a good try, but um, or rounded off a good try. But uh, he, he no, he's not playing at the top of his game at all. And I, I like Bear. You know, if if Jellybear is the is the French equivalent of Russell to a degree, and um, having those two on the field uh, against each other would have been a, a, an interesting thing. And Jalibert bought something to France yeah, yeah. when he came on late, yeah, late again. You know, uh, it was his his de- decision. I am pretty sure to switch the ball, which ended in uh, in, in Fiku's try. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end. So um no I'm not I'm not convinced by uh by uh and at the moment at all.
0: There's a sort of worry now for France as well at tight head. Obviously Noah Tonio for being red carded last week. This week I, I don't actually know how to say his name. How else are? however you say it. Yep. He got red carded the first player to ever be red carded twice in the Six Nations um if I'm not wrong about that, but Nick, obviously you're the scrum expert. Falatia, I thought, actually played very well when he came on. But is that somewhere an England scrum that is improving, is looking to exploit?
3: I, I, I don't. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, the England scrum was better. Um, I don't think that the Wales scrum was um, a scrum that really tested it at all. And they're going to be tested um is a big miss for uh, for the French. power's um, is is pretty solid when he can stay on the field, um, and the guy Falatea who came on, to, so he's their third string tight head. He started pretty well, but he actually faded a bit. And I wonder just how many of these props are really used to uh, you know right at the top end of the game are really used to putting in eighty minute shifts. Mm. And um, it's a very, very important... I, I think that it's a very important um, element for you to have in a team. Um, they're too used to sort of 50-minute shifts and you see guys falling off quite a lot. And I thought uh, Falatea looked looked very weary by the, by the end of the game. Yeah, um, he didn't. He didn't. But if there's one country that has got depth at prop, I would say it's France. So they'll probably wheel somebody up.
2: Yeah, be, yeah a, a
0: 140 kilo monster, probably as yeah. well, knowing them.
2: Um, <laughs> Ollie, just, just one yeah, more sorry. thing on that match. And I've never really noticed it before. We had the two red cards, um, and how really badly it affected them, in that not only did you lose the player who was sent off, but Scotland, and it was their decision, but they they decided to take Hamish Watson off so that they could have a, a a second row come on. And that really affected their back row. He was picked with a very specific job in mind against France. He was picked over Luke Crosby, who had two pretty decent matches in the first two matches. And then he got the French um, to fulfil their front row. They had to take a player off. And they took off Aldrich, who is, I think we agree, he hasn't been quite on last season's form, but I thought he'd started pretty well and was looking for a big match, and they suddenly lose Aldridge. Mm. So he got two changes on both sides, not just one. And for some reason, I'd never really clocked how how sort of impactful sometimes these sending offs are. But yeah, a lot of reorganization to do from both sides there.
0: Aldred was in my Six Nations fantasy team as well. So I was I was really unhappy about that. Cause what he got <laughs> yeah, he got hooked very early. Sorry, Nick, what were you gonna say?
3: I was, was going to say, yeah, it did. It did have a big impact, but it was still a, a really cracking game. Oh, absolutely!
2: But it probably changed the way both sides played a little bit. I think
3: for sure. But those two back row forwards—I mean, Watson coming coming back after a fairly lengthy injury, um, Aldrit not right at the top of his form, as you as you say. Although they both looked as if they'd settled into the game quite well, so they might have sort of cancelled each other out. One yeah. Way or another. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, but Hamish Watson probably could have used the minutes with Ireland to come in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, so for sure. Yeah, well, England obviously play, play France um, at Twickenham in a couple of weeks' time. Join us next week. We'll be previewing that and all uh, the other two fixtures as well with Will Greenwood. I'm conscious of time. Um, James, do you need to get going?
1: What time is it now? I could do another... I could do another 10 if you need me. Mm, yeah. you, How about you, Rugby you 15 about from
2: James? I think you'd have a good one.
1: Yeah? Should
2: we do
0: the oh, Rugby yes, 15? I, so. I think you'd have a good yeah. one. Okay, let's yeah, do yeah, a Rugby yeah. 15. Um, not in the middle of the episode as we usually do, but discussion was a bit too pressing. Uh, a, little, a little finale then for the episode. James, I did send you the questions in advance, I think. Uh, oh, there aren't too did. many shocks and surprises. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, let's get go going.
1: Nickname Moose. Uh, Given to me at 18, apparently because of the way I ran. You know, a real sort of clumsy, high leg lift. I'm told it's affectionate.
2: Uh, and I believe it.
0: So. <laughs> was that on the pitch nickname or off the pitch?
2: Um, we on have had two pitch. mooses on okay. this podcast. Yeah.
0: Have, we, have we? Who was the first?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Nick Kane, the moose, meet James Wilderhouse, the moose. Uh- <laughs>
3: <laughs> have
2: you have you got the
3: atlas somewhere, James? Uh, yeah. Yeah, tucked away. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to tackle a moose. To be fair, bloody enormous those things. Um, best rugby
1: memory. Uh, it was a draw uh, as an Isha side fighting for our survival. We went to play uh, Exeter at their shiny new Sandy Park Stadium. They were battling it out with Bristol to get promoted, and we scuppered them with a twelve-all draw. And as a team, we made more than 140 tackles. Uh, was it one for the archive? Probably not, but it was a great bus trip home. It was a winning draw then. <laughs> yeah. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Um, As a excitable 12-year-old desperate to play for the Aylesbury A team, uh, I was playing for the B team and I got given the ball and I ran the wrong way. And I... Um, Scored it over the, the wrong touchline and try line. Good, an, 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 an own try. Yeah, pre pre game tune. Oh, I would go. Um, I'd do like a bit of Green Day. I would. I, I was never like a head banging kind of you know. Let's get completely over aroused kind of guy. Get the smelling salts. I would just be play a bit of Green Day. I'd enjoy the social side of it. You know, I'd go and say hello to people. But yeah, Green Day. Uh, Dookie, that album just kind of got me in a bit of a happy place. Nice, I would say Green Day
0: slightly headbanging, or can be American Idiot, Holiday. Yeah, kind of, it's, it's it's more of a kind of
1: side to side. It's more of it, yeah. I get a kind of full bow. Yeah, <laughs> I get what you mean. Post game meal. Oh, I love the lasagna. You know, if a, if a clubhouse put on a lasagna, I was pretty happy with some some token sort of salad at the side. But yeah, good lasagna <laughs> and garlic bread, of course. Of course, best player you've played against. Uh, played against was Tom Vandell. Um, he was in my age group, so he played in the Chinner growing up. I played for Aylesbury, and then I remember doing a horrendous England schoolboy trial match at under 16, where I was playing against a backline, Ryan Lamb, uh, Vandell on the wing, Ollie Morgan at fullback, um, and it was just a miserable, miserable <laughs> afternoon. I, needless to say, my um, my, I was not progressed.
3: <laughs> he could player. just he
1: could just go ghost past people he was he was yeah. effortless best player you've played with george Lowe, um the harlequin center yeah, he yeah, came yeah. on low to isha and he used to, he, he it was as simple as just give him the ball he tore up in the in the old national one favorite player right now finn russell you know i just think he's got the kind of complicate the complexity about him that i just love i watched him at rassing on holiday last year and uh uh, just love him effortless rugby idol um probably richard hill growing up i remember my dad watched me take me to saracens and you know just all the sheer amount of work he got through and i just kind of tried to model myself on him never happened in the end but favorite stadium this is going to really pain me, but the Principality is just, you know, it's such a rarity to have a ground in the middle of a city. What about favourite stadium you've played at?
0: Assuming Uh, you haven't
1: played at the Principality. I have. Confirming I have not played at the Principality. (laughs) um, uh, What it was good to play, Um, the Memorial Ground, we went to play Bristol, was good fun in terms of playing surface and location and and everything else. I, I enjoyed that one. Favorite gym exercise? Um, God, this is my response is telling you loads, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, the look of disgust on your face is yeah, well. I know. I was, I was more of a, more anchored in the amateur era. Um, I think anything, a rower, that's the only thing I was yeah. remotely
0: decent at. Long levers. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. I think that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> Superstitions. None. not nice. buy into it. Rugby law, you would change?
1: I'd get rid of competing for the ball on the ground. I just, I'd just let it play, just speed it up. No, no, what? No jackling. No jackling. Go back I
0: to just, rucking. Just, yeah, just speed it up a bit. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Jiffy said that last week as well. Best he, th- yeah, he did. <laughs> Best thing about working in rugby?
1: Just the amount of time you spend with your mates. And then having that shared weekly experience, so that's two things. Yeah, which you just don't you don't replicate. Awesome, cool. Well,
0: that's the first time we've ever done that to wrap up the episode. But I'm glad we did. End on the low, (laughs) or the high of you running the wrong way and scoring (laughs) an, an own try. Um, yeah, thank you for doing that, James. I'll just run down the predictions league very quickly. Um, James, you're kind of like a mascot for the special guest team. I know, well, we what we do is we do a score prediction leading up to the game, so no games for you to predict this week. But you're on a team with Jiffy, Jerry Guscott, and Scott Hastings. Um, and you're doing okay wow. so far. Um, Nick has, well, actually, Chris Hewitt got a perfect score for France, although he got Wales England wrong, he's propelled up the leaderboard to draw level with Nick Kane in the wooden spoon position. How do you feel about that, Nick?
3: Yeah, gutted. (laughs) (laughs) An unwelcome company is what I would say
0: as well. Yeah, well, like like we say, unfortunately, he's not here to rub salt in the wound this week. I'm sure he'll have something to say next week. Um, Brendan and I were the only two to get three correct results, actually, because we predicted... An England win, unlike the other three donuts. Um, Brendan, I've just gone ahead of you. So, the 23 year old has taken the lead. I got 22 points, and Brendan got 21. But yeah, it's close. It's close. I'm on 51, Brendan's on 50, special guest on 47. Nick yeah. and Chris, okay, some enough way, but
3: enough of the gloating.
0: You're, you're 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 some way behind on. I think also you're about we, we, should, we
2: should point out that league tables can be a bit dodgy, as, as James will tell you. I think his Isha side once got relegated oh. in a season where they got 61 points and was it 11 wins? And yes. somehow, for the restructuring that went on that year, that was that saw Isha go down, which was absolutely fucking bonkers. I, st- I point still
1: point. can't talk about it. We were like 20-odd points above Sedgley Park, went down with them. Oh, rubbish.
2: That was yeah, the season you drew 12 all with Exeter. Down yeah, East. we had a few,
1: yeah. 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 They, when they changed the old national one into the championship, so they... Old five teams and let the um, the promoted side from the now national one come up, and uh, it was brutal. But it was it was the best season I had, you know, in terms of what we went through and, and the upsets we brought. But I'm I don't think I will ever be over it.
2: Sixty one points and relegated. I mean that's just not fair, is it?
1: I like that you know that Brendan that that means a lot.
2: Oh, I'm a complete nerd <laughs> with stuff
1: like that. <laughs> and, you, and you said finishing on a low.
0: Well, I guess Brendan's insured that now, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> James, it's been phenomenal having you on. Um, a fascinating and really unique first half of the Rugby paper. Um, and oh, thanks for speaking out about all of um, it. And yeah, I, I mean, I can't really say anything except good luck with. I'll keep up, you, yeah. up the good yeah, work, Enjoy um, the two It's weeks a real off.
1: privilege to be on, and it's great to kind of rugby is still a massive source of pleasure for me. So yeah, yeah. So, it's great. Great to meet you. All. Yeah. Joe. Well, uh, stay like, safe. Likewise, yeah.
0: Stay safe. Thank you, James. Is, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of The Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital, and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our
1: content for as little as 14p per day.